0: Shoes, what's
1: the matter,
2: Morty? Crunchy by our the friends. Oral. Great
0: gowns. Beautiful gowns.
1: Fashion has changed. No,
0: oh, it hasn't. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni.
2: I'm Chelsea Fairless.
0: And this week, we're doing something a little bit different. In honor of the release of House of Gucci, we thought we would dive into some infamous and or obscure fashion crimes.
2: And because this is a very special episode, we have a very special guest. She is a writer, a fashion historian, Costume Institute alumni who is currently holding court at Parsons School of Design, where she teaches fashion curation and death of cool. Our friend and mentor, Miss Jessica Glasscock.
1: Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me.
2: Of course. You're actually the only person I would do this with, like a full (laughs) ass episode, because we're actually, you know, we're friends. So it's not as it's not as scary. We don't have to be real journalists, you know?
1: Exactly.
0: But if our audience thinks that we have just an endless reserve of fashion history knowledge, it pales in comparison to that of your knowledge, Jessica.
1: Thank you so much. And I love doing this with you guys because I am equally like at home here. Oh. <laughs> well, it's fun because Jessica
2: and I work together at V files. And Lauren, you took Jessica's class at Parsons, which I very tragically never took. I feel like this is a major like blind spot in my education.
0: I know, Chelsea, I feel like our story would make a lot more sense if we did indeed meet in Jessica's class. So I feel like we should just change our history and say that we met in Jessica's class
1: death of cool. <laughs> I love it. My inaugural death of cool class was the very first one so every every student in there was a gem but especially lauren
2: oh my god love that for you so i don't actually know anything about the gucci murder all i know is what i have seen in this trailer but i hear lauren that you have taken one for the team and and read the book
0: yes so by now we all know that lady gaga had adam driver murdered <laughs> Kidding, but. The plot of House of Gucci, which started as a book, which should be its own Netflix series, because it's just so vast, but the film seems to focus on Maurizio Gucci and his ex-wife, Patricia Reggiani, who hired a hitman to have him murdered, so what better place to start the episode? I wanted to get into Maurizio's history because it's kind of his rise and fall to power at Gucci that ultimately leads Patricia Reggiani to have him murdered. Although, according to her, while she did hate him, she never wanted
2: him dead. So what did she want them to do, like shoot his dick off or something? Like, what was the plan?
0: <laughs> I don't know. A psychic is involved. We'll get to that in, in a second. But to give some context, and this is a very abbreviated history because the book is 300 pages, but Maurizio is the grandson of Guccio Gucci, who founded the label Gucci in 1921. He meets Patricia at a party. His father believes her to be a gold digger. I wonder why. Despite this, they marry... They live for many years happily in New York. They come back when Maurizio's father, Rodolfo, dies, and he inherits a majority stake in Gucci. This is a time where Gucci is incredibly successful. However, they basically have diluted their brand through mass production of goods and licensing kind of sub-brands, which is something, Jessica, I think you can get into. Because this was popular at the time, but it did fuck up the reputations of a lot of brands.
1: A lot of brands, but licensing in the 1970s, at first seemed like this way to print money, especially for luxury fashion houses, because their base product, if it's couture or if it's, you know, an extremely well-tooled leather bag, was very expensive to produce. And licensing seemed like a way to get the margins down, essentially. So it created an opportunity to make deals with manufacturers and with retailers who wanted a status label and would hand over a big bag of cash just for the G's or the C's or or whatever, you know, because everybody was into it. You know, a great example of this is as early as 1972, Gucci was creating this sort of special travel bag that they were sending to a retail store in Las Vegas because there was a lot of dumb money on the table in Las Vegas. And so all the fashion houses were engaging in this and they were all aware that you could dilute the brand like that wasn't you know they that that wasn't a surprise that that could happen, and I use the example to explain to students like that. It, back in the 1950s, Coco Chanel basically threatened her partners with producing more Chanel perfumes in order to dilute that market. And that led to her being invited back to be a designer again at Chanel after her exile in Switzerland. So there's awareness of this, that you can dilute your brand by too much licensing. But in the 1970s, it's a major recession and ready to wear and entry level sort of logoed merch is going to save luxury in this period, right? So everybody in, everybody in uh, this overcrowded market. There was such a thing even in the 70s as too far. I found this great story that Gucci sued Bloomingdale's, which was making a Gucci pie plate, like for apple pie. I'm setting an
2: eBay alert for that shit
1: right now. (laughs) Oh my God. I looked for it, but I want to know if you find it. (laughs) So number one, dilution starts to happen. People start to put their names on everything. But number two is every time you sell a little piece of your name to another manufacturer, you're kind of losing power over the product. And in the case of Gucci, it's interesting because In the infighting and among the family, they kind of weaponized the licensing power and they had competing licenses that different people in the Gucci family were trying to sign. And that becomes eventually every time cutting off a little piece of the company and selling it away, never to return.
0: Until Maurizio comes back into the fold in the 1980s. So his plan to make the company a premier luxury brand again is to buy out the rest of his family's share, unwind all of these licenses, and introduce ready-to-wear which was the correct thing to do. His vision was right. Unfortunately, he was kind of a womanizing spendthrift fuck-up who lacked follow-through, so that didn't really happen. (laughs) So instead of returning the Gucci brand to its historic past, which one of his ideas before he took over was, when introducing Ready to Wear, was to bring this young upstart designer named Giorgio Armani. But by the time he took over the company, Armani was, you know, Armani, so that didn't really work out so instead of doing that he ran the company into the ground and then at the same time he packed a bag one evening and left patricia and their two daughters never to come back ever again yikes So there are two events in the early 90s that set Mauricio's fate in stone. He divorces Patricia in 1985, but it takes six years for it to be finalized. He has plans to marry a family friend. This news enrages Patricia, who always thought perhaps they would get back together for some reason, even though she told anyone that would listen that she hated this man. And then the second thing was in trying to turn around Gucci, which would take about a decade, the books were just bleeding red because of Maurizio's spending. So he had to sell the other half of his shares to invest corp in 1993. He had previously sold 50% of his shares in the 80s to this company, and then in 1993 was forced to sell the rest. This was an insane slight to Reggiani, who believed that her children's inheritance was basically non-existent now because for the first time in Gucci's history, no Gucci was running the Gucci company. She would later say of the event, Losing the family business, it was stupid. It was a failure. I was filled with <laughs> rage, but there was nothing I could do. He shouldn't have done that to me.
2: <laughs> That's
0: more Penelope Cruz and Donatello Versace. <laughs> On March 27, 1995, Maurizio Gucci was shot dead, heading into his Milan office. And again, despite Reggiani telling anyone who would listen that she wanted him dead, it took two years for her to be arrested. At the trial, Patricia tried to blame her personal psychic for the crime. That's slack. Like, Miss Cleo made me do it? What the fuck is that? Yeah, it did not work. And in 1998, Reggiani was sentenced to 29 years in prison. She was released in 2016. She did have an option to be paroled in 2011, but declined because a condition
2: of her release was getting a job, and she refused. But wait, don't you kind of have to have a job in prison anyway? Like, you're not just sitting around watching, like,
1: HBO Max all day. Like, you have a full ass, right? I don't know what Italian prisons are like. I was gonna say, maybe it's, like, Goodfellas. Maybe they're just, you know, making pasta and getting lobsters and opening the (laughs) wine.
0: In 2014, she gave an interview where she said that she hoped to return to the Gucci fold saying they need me. I still feel like a Gucci. In fact, I am the most Gucci of them all. With not a drop of
2: Gucci blood. Come on, bitch. (laughs) She seems pretty cool. I mean, love a murderer. (laughs) Love a glamorous murderess. Although I think the scariest thing to ever happen to Gucci was the Fria Giannini years, but that's just me.
0: <laughs> that's probably when Patricia gave that quote. She was like, look, do you see what's going on in the runways?
2: Do you see these disgusting shoes?
0: Yeah. Uh. There is an interlude in the House of Gucci book where she does, when Maurizio initially takes over, tries to release a jewelry line that is so garish and so expensive that no one buys it. They're, they were like gold-plated bracelets that had a like a crocodile texture on them, and they had to be put in the display of like the main Gucci store because it's the wife of the boss, and uh, it's safe to say no one bought
2: any of it. Oh, another
1: eBay alert I should be setting. At least it's a crime of passion, which I think are my preference when it comes to crimes of fashion. Oh, a little too much rhyming there. Sorry about that.
2: <laughs> okay, Carrie Bradshaw.
1: Apologies. But I guess we also should bring up the the murder of Gianni Versace, right? I mean, that's a famous one. Although I have to say, not my favorite crime of fashion. I think because it's getting serial killers like mixed up in crime of fashion. Right. I mean, it was it was genuinely upsetting. I remember being really, like, shocked
2: by it at the time because, like, I really got into fashion in, like, 95 when Clueless came out and Unzipped came out. So by 97, I was, like, fully obsessed with the supermodels and Versace and all of that shit. Then he dies, and then Princess Diana died, like, a month later. So fucked. The 90s were a pretty
0: crazy time. I do, you know, Maurizio Gucci was shot in 1995. Johnny Versace was shot in 97. Do you think
2: Armani beefed up his security? I hope so. Me too. I mean, Andrew Cunanan is just a terrifying person. And I get that, like, Darren Chris's portrayal of him in the Ryan Murphy <laughs> series is, like has strongly impacted how I view him, but you know, he, he killed five people. He was a full on spree murderer. I think what bothers me to this day is we
0: don't know why. I mean, even in the Versace American Crime Stories series, they don't get into it. And a lot of it is speculation because yeah, we don't
1: know because he took himself out of the equation at the end, if it was about fame, you know, well we he didn't he didn't wait around to cash in on that. I feel like what bothers me about the murders it's it's sort of like well, it's sort of like the Michael Eilig murders at the or murder, pardon me, just one that we know of, you know, at the end of the club kid era, which is another horrific, violent crime of, of fashion in the late 90s, but it, it like colored the whole scene. And I feel like Kunanen's murder of Versace colors his whole career. And, and that kind of bugs me. I mean, I, I I think I just don't want to think about it that way. I yeah. just want it to be like supermodels and, you know, garish Medusa heads, but not like this loser. Yeah. I do
0: enjoy about the limited series that in preparation for it, the House of Versace, Donatella signed off on it. Penelope Cruz met with Donatella. And then like, if you remember, two days before it came out, the company was like, we don't, we don't fuck with this limited series. And it was like, oh, that's weird. Why? And then you come to learn that because it's based on the Maureen Orth book, that it gets into the fact that they were trying to cover up that Johnny was gay because they were trying to take the company public.
2: Right. Yeah. That did not make Donatella look so good. Although I'm sure she was mostly just happy that they cast like a really glamorous, talented, you know, actress to play her.
0: Not to blow up your spot, Jessica, but I know you didn't finish the series, but you did get to witness Chelsea and I's favorite moment, which we quote to each other to this day, which is
1: I will not allow that man. That nobody to kill my brother twice. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. I mean, that's what I was there for mainly was the Penelope Cruz. But I I don't know. You know, I had the very Gen X experience with the whole serial killer thing in the 90s. And I, I feel like I want it separate in a separate bucket from my fashion. So I was like, you know what? I like my Brad Pitt, California serial killer. I don't like this guy. I get that. But at
2: the same time, knowing that you ducked out early in the season, you never got to the bottle episode starring Judith Light as the widow of the bisexual real estate tycoon that he murdered like earlier on his spree like that. That was the high point of it for me anyway. That and Ricky Martin being really hot. So, yeah, we don't have much more to say about the the murder of Johnny
0: Versace, but it seemed a little out of place if we did not reference it. And I think we're moving on to. Well, I have something
2: to talk about.
0: (laughs) I know we've talked about murders.
2: Let's get into stalking. Ooh. So I wanted to bring attention to a fashion related crime that has been living rent free in my head for years, which is the fact that Jill Sander had a lesbian stalker. To provide a little context for those of you who may not be super familiar with Jill Sander, she was very influential, important minimalist designer in the 80s and 90s. The Phoebe Philo of her time, she doesn't design for her namesake label anymore, but she has this ongoing collaboration with Uniqlo that people still line up for, actually. It's good. Yeah, it is good. I have stuff from it. And she's also a lesbian, but she never was like waving the pride flag. She was very like Jodie Foster-esque about it and that she was just like, I'm a private person. Unfortunately, this stalker situation is kind of what outed her to a lot of non-industry people, which is arguably the worst way to come out in the world, I would say. I mean, that and being outed in the mid-aughts by Perez Hilton. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's equally dehumanizing. So she had a partner of nearly 30 years named Dickie Momsen. Dickie died in 2014 of cancer, tragically. But in 2006, Jill and Dickie were both terrorized by this woman named Sandra D. And I mean, it's Sandra D, like the letter D, not like Olivia Newton John's character in Greece, just to clarify. <laughs>
1: that would be a John
2: Waters film. (laughs) I mean, this should be a John Waters film. There's so little about this online that I actually had to use Google Translate to just translate a bunch of old German newspaper articles about this. But basically, Sandra D had been sending them obscene letters, which I'm very intrigued by, um, obscene phone calls. She showed up at their house. She spied on them and followed them and terrorized their family members and said that if they didn't break up she would kill both of them fully fucking terrifying basically she you know as the court appointed psychiatrist said she was suffering from delusions of love she believed that jill sander was in love with her that they had a relationship and that dickie was getting in the way which is why she had to go basically and she also called dickie a whore in open court it's very very dramatic Delusions of
0: Love is such a great title, too. American Crime Story, Delusions of Love, Jill Sanders
2: Stalker Story. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's fucked up because there's definitely nothing campy about this. Like, this is a fully, like, horrifying, dark situation that was probably a complete nightmare. But I think because I've watched so many 90s thrillers like single white female, like basic instinct, it's just kind of like the idea of a lesbian stalker terrorizing a fashion designer. Like, there's just something about it that it does something for me, you know? It's very Eyes
0: of Laura Mars. But doesn't this not help the, you know, gay people are crazy trope
2: in media? No, I know. She's like, she is the trope. This bitch, like, this is the real deal. You know, she (laughs) was that and she was... um. You know sentenced to 15 months in jail but ultimately didn't serve it because they just institutionalized her. She had had like violent outbursts before. Like she threw a knife at a butcher. She attacked her neighbor. Like she was not like a sane, sane woman. But I don't know if Sandra D is still at the psych ward or if she's running free. If anyone has any insight about this, uh, call into the hotline and let us know. It's like shades of Valerie Solanus, that kind of obsession. Totally. Well, also one one like particularly terrifying thing that she did was she basically self-published like an unauthorized biography of Jill Sander and then (laughs) mailed it to her on her birthday as like a birthday present, which is like terrifying, but also like, where is this book?
0: Uh, yeah, that's the one thing that this Sandra D doesn't have on Valerie Solanas. There's no uh, scum manifesto. There's
2: no Sander manifesto. It's, it's true. Like, on one hand, it's like, I get it, Sandra D. Like, this is a very glamorous couple. Like, I'll put a picture of Jill Sander and, and Dickie Momsen from the period in the show notes. Like, I can see getting obsessed with this, but, you know, obviously what she did is super fucked up
1: yikes although at the same time also i'm like i'm like seeing it by verhoven and it seems like fun i don't know exactly exactly it it is it feels extremely cinematic i mean where's the
2: ryan murphy series of this ship everything that we have outlined and we're going to outline would
0: make a perfect limited series netflix get on it yeah if
2: anyone wants to option this podcast as a uh, <laughs> what's it called when it's um when it's like each episode is like a different story
1: anthology
2: uh, yes, Netflix, if you uh, want to option this podcast and turn it into a anthology series, we would love that.
1: Well, as I
0: said, the current pipeline for media right now is podcast into documentary into prestige limited series. There's hope. All right. Now we're moving on to a section we like to call Mysterious Deaths. This will be the most conspiratorial part of the episode. <laughs> I would like to begin with something that I guess is not technically a crime, but I hope you guys will accept this because it's just so fucking weird. And it's the fact that the designer, Madame Grey, the French couturier, daughter lied about her death for a year and would give correspondences in quotes as her mother. This is like something out of a Todd
2: Haynes film. Yeah, it's not a crime, but it's creepy. I mean, it's basically catfishing, right? She was like catfishing WWD. I guess in 93, there was a retrospective of Madame
0: Grey at the Met, and she sent in a bunch of quotes. And when the French newspaper Le Monde went to go investigate this, she initially was like, oh no, she said, mama's absent which just the phrasing you're calling your dead mother mama
2: is Norman Bates territory. Well, that's what I I thought about Norman Bates when I first heard about this, because I immediately went to like, what did she conceal the body? Like, is there some skeleton with a turban on it? Like in somewhere, some weird, sketchy house in the south of France. But
0: I mean, in in our scripted version, there will be. But no, she she just (laughs) died in... You know, a convalescence home a year before and her daughter felt that the fashion industry had abandoned her and so for a year when people asked for quotes she just spoke as her mother and again eventually Lamont tracked her death certificate down and found out that she had died a year previously but you know she was giving quotes like oh my mother doesn't know who she is anymore she's resting listening to music Uh, it's like somebody took a chunk out of her brain and threw it in the trash I don't want people to see her that would be like betraying her she doesn't
2: wear her turban anymore chelsea that's that's not a good sign but how rude to be like uh no she's not dead she just has alzheimer's and is no longer wearing turbans i think this bitch was jealous of her mom and like wanted to be her mom like in in my ryan murphy adaptation of this story the daughter is some sort of like failed fashion designer that never really had a breathtaking vision for women's wear like Madame Grey did. And then, you know, after her death can then just assume her mother's life. But Chelsea, she's not telling on her mother.
0: When she gives that quote about what her mother is doing, her mother's already dead. Like, that's the weirdest thing. Just say no comment.
1: I have a question and maybe a theory. Was So were Madame Grey designs still being produced for her clientele? Like, was she, was she potentially protecting the atelier? I don't think this was the
2: 90s, so I don't think.
0: Yeah, it's not dissimilar to what happened to Gucci. In 84, the label was in the red. She sold it to a businessman who then two years later re- resold it to an equity firm, who then sold it to another equity firm that did not guarantee her royalties?
1: Intriguing. Yeah, then I'm going with the uh, Baby Jane version.
2: Yeah. It's there is something really dark and sinister about it, I think. And there are some things that are just straight up aren't crimes, but like they should be kind of crimes. And I think impersonating someone and concealing their death uh, is is one
1: of those things.
0: Yeah. And there's no foul play suspected. She had nothing to gain financially. She just did it.
1: Well, we, we all grieve in different ways, I guess. <laughs> uh I have, I have a mysterious death and I think I have solved the mystery.
2: (laughs) Okay. I'm
1: very excited. I, I basically went like full CSI on Dior's heart attack.
2: Ooh, are we breaking news on the Every Outfit pod? Love this for us. I don't know if
1: we're breaking news. I mean, (laughs) he definitely died of a heart attack. That's a matter of record. Okay, But but what was the nature of the heart attack and why? Or, or, well, okay. So there are theories about what precipitated Dior's heart attack. And I'd always heard, allegedly, that he was on a diet to impress a new boyfriend. But that's totally like friend of a friend's cousin kind of thing. So I got got nothing to back that up. Wait, how
2: old was he at the time? Gosh, I guess he was fifty-two. Okay,
0: but in the nineteen fifties, sixties, that might as well be seventy-two.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. People could live for a long time then, but <laughs> I don't think that's true, Jessica. I know my handicap. But there's also this idea that somehow it's it's all about Eve as in Yves Saint Laurent, who came after him at the House of Dior for two short years before he moved on to, frankly, his own enormous success. But, you know, it is that delicious idea of like a young ingenue designer who comes in and but I, I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I went to the paper of record, which of course, WWD to kind of pour over it and, and you know, get my crazy wall together. And, you know, so I was reading and the report is that within two hours of his death, Dior had spent the evening quietly in his suite playing cards with friends. So that that's the last thing he was doing. And he was doing it while he was on a vacation at a hotel in Montecatini, Italy, which was a spa town and sort of vacation resort going back to the medieval era, uh, because this spa town supposedly had healing waters at six therapeutic springs. And so this idea of like all about Eve, I think, doesn't work because, number one, Yves Saint Laurent's name doesn't come up at all in the wall to wall coverage of of Dior's death and the obituary. It is said that he was already under consideration or had already been sort of assigned the mantle at the House of Dior. But that's because Dior was ill which everybody knew and was mentioned repeatedly in this coverage of his death. Uh, I can quote WWD. It says it was known Dior himself had been worried about his health for the past two years. And that in the closing period of his life, he was being assisted by at least two talented younger creators being trained to take over when the couturier retired. So he was already ill basically. Then to sort of what precipitated the heart attack, what was going on? I go to John Fairchild's obituary in WWD, the longtime editor and spiritual leader of the publication for a number of years, and he talks about it in his opening lines. He says that Dior was quote in the 11th year of business and still active, but forced to give more and more work to assistants because he began to tire easily. He was a gourmet. And against doctor's advice, overate. One of his great passions was chocolates, often given to him by female admirers. Close quote. Wait, what? First paragraph of his obituary, man. I mean, obviously, then I'm like, death by chocolate? Oh, my God. How many chocolates did he eat? Like, what the fuck? I don't know, but that's how I want to go. Like, if that's the truth, I'm kind of into <laughs> it. Like, but I, I, And so later <laughs> in the obituary, uh, Fairchild alludes to Dior, you know, he talks about these female admirers, i.e. the women who bought his clothes, but then also says that Dior's designs demanded that women be, and I quote, figure conscious and figure conscious is the word so much associated with Dior and his work and that hourglass, very intense silhouette. So, I mean, there is a conspiracy theory in here that these women had their revenge with all this chocolate, <laughs> but I think not. I think that, that, that's, so that's too much of a conspiracy. So I finally sort of looking into it a little more decided that, that what I think it was, was a death by crash diet. And, and, the reason I think that is number one, I feel like Fairchild basically says it. Like, and if anybody's going to say he was had too much weight, he needed to lose it, and that's why it, he died, it's going to be Fairchild, because he's very much from the, if you don't have anything nice to say, sit here by me, school of reporting. So I feel like if anybody's going to say it, it's going to be Fairchild. Right. It's what I read. But I also looked up this town of Montecatini and the spa they're in. <laughs> I, I love this investigation. There was like yarn and like connections in my room. You're on like Google uh, Google Earth, like finding the- Deep them. dive. So Montecatini, <laughs> spa for a long time, by the 1920s is kind of known as like a weight loss spa. So that is, that is part of the purpose. I even found this article from the 1920s that was titled Martyrdom of the Obese at Carlsbad. Which was about these two sort of Vogue women's quest for the right, you know, place to go and take the waters. And they actually dismissed Montecatini saying, an August a few miles away from Florence might be more of a kill than a cure. I hear that the waters over there are overpowering anyway. So it's like a hardcore diet
2: spot. <laughs> Okay, wait. Okay. So if he died of a crash diet, why did Carl Lagerfeld and Mark Jacobs not meet the same tragic fate? <laughs>
0: They didn't drink the water at the spa. Carl <laughs> Lagerfeld just drank Diet Coke.
2: <laughs> and Mark Jacobs was working out with a trainer for like eight hours a day. Exactly.
1: I was looking into like, the, so all these spas have these all crazy diets. Like, you know, you're going to eat the Rusk crackers. Or you're just going to have vegetables and buttermilk for like two weeks. Like it's that kind of thing at all these spas. And then you drink the waters. That's. The whole point of the spa is that you're drinking these special waters. And so I found out from another article that the mineral waters of Montecatini are particularly purging and have been famous as such for 400 years. And I found out that, hmm. that basically Montecatini was this place where like sort of all over Europe, you would come to kind of do a purge of all of your high living over you know, and like like cleanse your body, do a cleanse for two weeks. And you would do it by drinking what was described as, and again, I quote, the hot, salty, sulfurous waters at the spa. So the special feature here was that you were going to do a saltwater flush. A saltwater flush is is pretty hardcore as a diet technique, and it is not recommended for people who have heart problems or diabetes or high blood pressure, which seems like an array of symptoms that Monsieur Dior may have been displaying. So I believe that the mystery of his death was a crash (laughs) diet, a saltwater flush. That is so
2: fucking dark. (laughs) I mean, but then, you know, the the desire to be thin and glamorous just got him.
0: As we previously said, also got a lot of other designers, namely Karl
1: Lagerfeld and Marc Jacobs.
2: Yeah. Also, it's like that's what he gets for making us wear the new look, you know?
1: I mean, well, and all of the women who would have been his clients would have also been going to spas like these. Like, this was a very, this was a very normal thing to go to a spa like this and to take it off. And if you actually look at diet advice in fashion magazines in the 1950s, it's crazy because they're fasting diets. They're diets of like a poached egg, a grapefruit, a gallon of black coffee, and then like steamed fish, you know? And the idea is not what I respect about these diets is that like, this isn't about nutrition or good health. You want to get into that dress. And and there was a right. real directness and openness that I think now is buried in a lot of wellness language, even though the goal is still to get into that dress sometimes. There's like these layers of uh, dissimulation, I guess, over it. Yeah, I guess like women's
2: magazines and stuff, they can't outright tell you to starve yourself anymore. No. So they just tell you to fast or whatever.
0: I mean, we have a few Helen Gurley, Gurley, Helen Gurley
2: Brown. brown? Oh, yeah. Well, she's her books are incredible to anyone that wants to uh, to read the most deranged self-help books of all time. But she was basically like a high functioning anorexic, you know, her diet advice is.
0: Yeah. With some of the most outright disordered eating you've ever seen. Yeah.
2: She was fully that like, I'll have a grapefruit and some cottage cheese and some champagne and
0: Yeah, lunch was cigarettes and champagne.
2: Rest in peace.
0: God, why do we love such a fucked up industry, guys? That's a whole different episode.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, it gets you, you know? But I think the cool thing about her was, on one hand, she was drinking the Kool-Aid and was, like, very obsessed with presenting in this just, like... thin proper fashion sort of uptight way but at the same time her writing was so unhinged and she was so sort of like honest about her relationship with dieting and exercise and she was very like self-deprecating in a way we should say for those who don't know helen Gurley brown was the editor of cosmopolitan
0: yes and put a a naked burt reynolds in the magazine so you know feminism
2: and to bring it back to Sex in the City, wrote Sex and the Single Girl, which is where the title of Candace's column uh, originates. Anyway, God, all roads lead back. It's really <laughs> true. Well, speaking of
0: where one's love of fashion can take you, I think it's now time to get into a little shoplifting.
1: Uh-oh. Sure.
0: And where would we be if we did not discuss maybe one of the most infamous shoplifters of the last 20 years, actually almost 20 years to the day, Miss Winona Ryder and her little shopping trip at Saks.
2: That to me is one of the best things that's ever happened in culture, hands down, because it's campy and it's fun and it's kind of dark, but it's actually not that dark. But I knew we were going to talk about this today So I was like, oh, I need to rewatch the video of her stealing from the security cameras in Saks. And I completely forgot how brazen she was. Like, it's not like she was like hiding, putting a sweater in like a, a shopping bag that she already had. She was literally like carrying shit out the door the way that I carry shit at Uniqlo when I'm trying on like 50 things. You know what I mean? It was very like it was like she was like a pack mule. To go back, for the three of you that somehow listened to this podcast but
0: don't know about this incident, on December 12, 2001, Winona Ryder was arrested for shoplifting more than $5,000 worth of designer goods from Saks Fifth Avenue, although it's Saks, so that could have been three items. Like, who's to say? Uh, Ryder was seen in a now infamous security footage, as Chelsea was describing, using scissors to snip the security tags off clothes, a handbag and hair accessories, and then putting them in a bag of... Saks goods that she had purchased earlier which might uh, explain the brazenness that you saw Chelsea so she bought stuff then went back to shop and she was stuffing the things she was stealing in a bag of stuff she already bought But
2: why was she not doing this in a dressing room like she was snipping like in the store that's what I'm saying it's just like really really wild.
0: I love this detail that when she was arrested, a security guard gave an interview afterwards and said that she said she was preparing for a role
2: and that her director had told her to steal. We're, we're still waiting for that movie, Winona. <laughs> what was that role? I'm trying to think of any role where like adult women are like shoplifting. Chelsea, she was lying, but I'm going <laughs> to... I'm aware that she's lying. I'm just, I'm just saying like, wh- where is this fabulous shoplifting movie? I'd love to watch it.
0: We we need to write it, I guess. I'm going to just start using that now as an excuse of like, oh, I'm sorry, I stole this because I'm a writer and I'm writing a movie about shoplifting. (laughs) So the LA district attorney assembled eight prosecutors. Don't we think that's a touch too many? It seems like a misuse of, of funds, yes. To bring four felony charges against her. The trial, which only lasted six days. Chelsea has a love of jury duty. Could you imagine being on this jury? That's, yeah, that's like what I dream of.
2: Can you imagine?
0: A detail I love is that the movie producer Peter Goober was on the jury and he had produced four films that Winona had done, which is like, how did he not get bounced from the jury?
2: Yeah, that that seems like a conflict of interest.
0: Anyway, in December 2002, she was sentenced to three years of probation, 480 hours of community service, $3,700 in fines, and $6,355 in restitution to Saks Fifth Avenue. And she was also order to attend psychological and drug counseling
1: wait
2: so that seems like a lot like she just stole a few like mark jacob sweaters who gives a shit
0: yeah it said that it went to trial because they couldn't reach a plea deal but this again as angelino seems like a, a misuse of our taxpayer dollars just for her to get probation
1: yeah i mean so They basically judged her to be like kind of a neurotic shoplifter. That's where they went with this. Because that's a grand tradition in department stores, probably Saks itself because it goes so far back. I mean, upper middle class ladies kleptomania is an idea that goes back to like the 19th century without a doubt. Like that women would go in and they were so fragile and unstable. You know how girls are. And (laughs) they would just not be able to resist the amazing goods in the various department stores. Um, And then they would get caught, except they wouldn't get in any trouble. They'd just bill their husbands, which I don't understand why they didn't just bill Winona's credit card. Right. Didn't they? Didn't they have it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's what her lawyer, Mark Garagos, who would go on to defend uh, Michael Jackson later But her lawyer claimed that as soon as they sat her down, it was all a misunderstanding. She gave her credit card. But unfortunately, there is that security cam footage that shows her clearly cutting tags.
2: Yeah. Yeah, she fucked herself with that one. I love how she ended up wearing Marc Jacobs to her court date. And it was like during that era where it was all about those sort of 60s Peter Pan collar Dolly Bird type shit. I think it's a very fun little court rebrand for her. You know, and she didn't do the cliche thing, which is to wear like a white pantsuit or something.
0: Also displaying a complete full circle moment and also displaying that Marc Jacobs is always in on the joke. One of the things Winona Ryder stole was a Marc Jacobs sweater. She would then go on to wear Marc Jacobs to court, as Chelsea just indicated, which those photos then inspired Marc Jacobs to cast her in the ad campaign The following following year
2: i mean honestly i love the the jurgen teller campaign it's amazing but if i was mark i would have literally just bought those photos from getty
1: images of her like in court you know in the dress i wonder did she get paid for the ad campaign for mark jacobs or was it part of her restitution i couldn't find anything about that i'm sure they paid her did she try to
0: put that towards the 480 hours of community That's service? what I'm thinking.
2: She's like, they wouldn't let me wear makeup. <laughs> Jurgen is a very fussy photographer. <laughs> did not make me look glamorous at all. Although, of course, she did. Yeah, I'm sure
0: what people, the iconography that people know the most from this case would be the free Winona shirts, which even before Winona Ryder was charged with a crime, Uh, A local shop owner made these shirts as a free Winona that had a graphic of a 1960s woman with a bouffant that more looks like, you know, Winona Ryder and mermaids or something. And this is still early days of the Internet. I would say we're like in between Internet 1.0 and 2.0, but they went whatever that the early aughts equivalent of going viral to the point that Winona Ryder was on the cover of W magazine in June 2002 Promoting Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler, which is a rough one. Yikes. Wearing the Free Winona shirt, even before she went to trial, which is pretty brazen, I feel.
2: Oh, completely. Completely, but that's why we love it. Yeah, them. I was going to say respect. And today, Free Winona shirts are still being made by Virgil Abloh, who is just like churning them out for off-white. It has been for a few seasons now, if anyone needs a phone case that says Free Winona. But it basically, like, it's not the original shirt. It's just the text. It looks like it was designed in five minutes, like kind of like the Dior, we should all be feminist shirts. And also the fact that Off-White sells their shirt for $285. So speaking of crimes in Beverly Hills, I wanted to mention a more recent crime, which was the rampant use of stolen or fraudulently obtained EDD cards on Rodeo Drive edd cards being the prepaid cards you get when you're on unemployment in the united states so this was going on for months during the pandemic because people were either like robbing mailmen robbing their neighbors and stealing these unemployment cards or they were just applying for them under fraudulent circumstances and some people were even applying for ppe loans which were the loans for businesses so these random kids would get these cards that had like you know fifty thousand dollars $80,000 on them. And then they'd go straight to Rodeo drive and just blow them in all of the stores. Um, and in some instances, you know, it's like for months, kids were going in there with like, just like they'd have stacks of them basically just be like, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? Um, and the stores kind of didn't do anything about it because for a, like you can't turn someone away for using multiple credit cards and b they had the loss of tourists and sp- specifically foreign tourists that are what that are a big uh, part of what keeps rodeo drive afloat so this went on for months but then of course the LAPD noticed they did a bust one day where they arrested 44 people they confiscated 144 edd cards worth a total of 2.5 million dollars and that was one day last september damn
1: Damn.
2: is that crazy like 2.5 million dollars one day like this was actually going on for months and months and months so what you're saying is this was like supermarket sweeps but with luxury brands. Yeah. And like uh, certain Rodeo employees who, who would wish to remain anonymous were like, yeah, like people would come in and be FaceTiming their friends and being like, what do you want? What do you want? I'm in, you know, whatever store and there's picking out stuff for their friends. On one hand, I think it's kind of cool that all of these kids got government subsidized luxury goods. But on the other hand, I feel really bad for the people whose EED cards got stolen because That's a hard system to navigate to begin with. And imagine you finally do it, you get approved, they send the card to your house and then some random blows it on like Louis Vuitton sneakers or something.
1: Although I have to say, if the history of retail leakage and shrinkage is any guide, I bet a lot of it was to a degree organized. You know, that that there, well, I'm sure there's like stories of like kids who stole things, but I think there's also probably a lot of like, we've figured out how to gouge the government for EDD cards and, and move it into something that has a great resale value. Cause I would imagine sneakers and bags and, and all those things, you know, they're like money in the bank, right? For sure. But I mean, these people could have just taken
2: out $50,000 in cash. Like that's the, that's what I don't get. It's interesting
0: there's not in mounting this episode I thought there would be more crimes.
1: I thought when I was like looking it up that I was going to find all sorts of like I don't know let's call them more fun fashion crimes. I mean I did find some kind of artful dodger shoplifting stories of the 1910s that that were kind of cute but When I went like into WWD and looked for sort of other murders and things like that, I was hoping for crimes of passion, but getting like sad stories of somebody who, you know, was killed in the garment district. And it was kind of a, it was a bummer. You know, I I think that a a, a crime that has the kind of camp that that you're looking for is maybe a little more rare.
0: Well, somehow it happens in the entertainment industry much more than the fashion industry. So I guess the fashion industry is less fucked up than the entertainment industry. I guess that's what I've gotten out of this. Or the fashion
2: industry is just better at hiding the bodies or something.
1: Ooh. I mean, I'll conclude by thanking you guys for having me. This was super fun and and diving in and doing my crazy wall on Dior's death was was like some excitement for me. I appreciate the opportunity.
2: Uh, of course, come back anytime. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, it's like you are one of my favorite people in the world and the only person I would want on the fashion crimes episode. um apart from this bitch of course
0: i was gonna say i what i will say is that i'm recording with my two favorite people to record with so jessica we hope to have you back
1: also plug your book jessica well i mean one of the things i loved about the gucci film was the gucci eyewear on display and you know that whole story about licensing man like Eyewear was like the big money in the 70s. Everybody was like, wait, we can like have these nice people, you know, at Luxottica, for example, you know, get us together some some pair of frames that articulates our creative vision and then just mint money with it. It was a great thing. And that was the story I was diving into with my book, Making a Spectacle, because I got to get into how fashion and eyewear got together. And then you've got this movie where it's like the most dramatic extremes of that. So everyone, buy Jessica's book, available
2: wherever books are sold. An excellent stocking stuffer. Uh, Yes. If you have someone in your life that has everything, we can guarantee you they don't have this book. (laughs) Yes, such a good Christmas gift. All right. Thanks again, Jessica. And we will be back next week. What are we doing next week, Lauren? We're going to talk about all the fall movies we've seen. We'll get into
0: House of Gucci. Yeah, we will have seen it by then. And we'll also get into the Von Dutch documentary, which did not make this podcast because there's not really a crime in this fashion. Uh, it is actually a crime of fashion, Von Dutch, but there's no really fashion crime <laughs> attached to exactly.
2: it. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.